Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for the wonderful weather that we have this morning. I thank you for everyone who came out to worship you. You are our purpose. To bring glory to you is why we are here. We live our lives for you. Lord, we thank you for your word that gives to us these great and powerful stories of, of, of your people and, and the men that you placed in leadership over them and these stories of, of, the, of seas parting and rivers parting and walls coming down and people being raised from the dead. And Lord, we know that's the same God that we serve today. Lord, we thank you that not only does your word give us these great stories, but it also lays out plainly how we can have a restored relationship with you. And it's only through Jesus. It's only through his death and resurrection. It's only through our acceptance of that and repentance of our sins. And Lord, we thank you that that gives us the only hope that we ever need. That is our true hope. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. There's an article published uh, this past spring on Science101.com entitled, 30 Seemingly Impossible Places That Actually Exist. Included in it are places that scientists are baffled as to what phenomenon occur there. The first one is Mother Shipton's Petrifying Well in North Yorkshire, England. According to legend, a woman, named, uh, a woman born Ursula Southell in 1488 in a cave in Knaresborough, England, was later accused of being a witch and renamed Mother Shipton. She was said to have bewitched this certain naturally occurring well that turned whatever object was left in it to stone. Well, this well does exist, and it does turn objects to stone. And if you visit it, you'll see everything from teddy bears to bicycles all turned to stone. The scientific explanation is that it's due to highly mineralized water that drips and forms stone over objects much like stalagmites and stalactites in caves. However, what is astonishing about the ability of this well to turn objects into stone is that it only happens in about three to five months. You could leave something in this well, come back three months later, and it's turned to stone. In Minnesota's Judge C.R. Magney State Park, there's a mysterious waterfall known as the Devil's Kettle. What's so strange about this waterfall is that it splits in two, and you can kind of see that. One side continues down, cascading in this pool. The other side mysteriously disappears down this deep, dark hole. Over the years, tourists have dropped objects down that hole, trying to see where that water comes back out. But they've had no luck. Not long ago, a scientist who specializes in hydrology named Jeff Green decided to figure out where that water was going. His team concluded that from the water volume further down the bottom of the falls, that it was consistent with the volume before the falls, so that meant that the water disappearing rejoined with the rest of the water at some point further down the mountain, but, or, or, or the, uh, the bottom of the waterfall. But the question remains, what happened to all those objects people have dropped down that hole? They never came back out. Lastly is the account of the Michigan Triangle. We've all heard of the Bermuda Triangle and the mysterious disappearances connected with that, but the U.S. has, has its own version within Lake Michigan. 
Several accounts of shipwrecks and plane crashes with no explanation have occurred within this space. A local news outlet gives more specific details. The first account was that a three-masted schooner that set out from Chicago in 1891 and never came back. There was no wreckage, nor bodies recovered. Thirty years later, another schooner named the Rosabelle was found floating upside down and the crew completely vanished. No one reported having contact with the ship and no one reported a, a collision. Sometime later, a captain, a captain of another ship went into his cabin to take a nap. When a crew member went to wake him and heard no answer, he busted down the door, which had been locked from the inside, and discovered the captain had simply vanished. There are several other stories, and what connects them is that in most cases, no one has been able to explain them. This past week, the VBS kids have been learning all about a man named Joshua and specifically what being a leader faithful to God is. Our lesson leader, Mr. Don Jackson, then turned each lesson towards Jesus and the salvation that Jesus will give to us if we believe in him. I want to focus our time this morning on one experience in Joshua's life that connects with every one of us here today. Like I opened up our time with, there are things in this world that are fascinating and in some cases are scientifically explainable. So people attribute them to uh, other things. Where we pick up with our friend Joshua is a short while after the great prophet and leader of Israel, Moses, died. Moses had led the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt and led them around the Middle Eastern wilderness for 40 years. Towards the end of Moses' life, he commissioned his servant, who had been with him all this time and had proved himself faithful as a spy, obedient to God, a man named Joshua, to be the next leader of Israel. Following this, Joshua and the rest of the Israelites witnessed the supernatural and scientifically unexplainable parting of the Jordan River, during which all two million Israelites crossed through the flooded Jordan River on dry land. The first and biggest obstacle they now faced was they had to conquer the land that God had promised to their ancestors. And the first obstacle is the walled city of Jericho. Dr. Bryant Wood, a creationist archaeologist with three master's degrees and a Ph.D. in Syrio-Palestinian archaeology from the University of Toronto, was the first scholar to study the conquest of Jericho and offer an entirely plausible argument for its destruction being in connection with the biblical historical account. Here's how Dr. Wood describes the walled city of Jericho. And I want to describe all of this so we see the sheer human impossibility of the Israelites breaching it and conquering it all on their own. Here's a diagram of what they found at the a recreation of what they found at the site of Jericho. What remains. As you can see, there are actually three different walls that made up the walled city of Jericho. We have one, two, three. The first one was a retaining wall, as we can see there, that held back all this hilled-up dirt and was itself 12 to 15 feet tall. On top of that, 
was uh, on top of that retaining wall was the first mud brick wall that was six feet thick and 20 to 26 feet tall on top of that retaining wall. Even if you were somehow able to scale the first two walls, you would be completely exposed as you tried to work your way up this steep embankment to the third wall. Once again, Dr. Wood explains that humanly speaking, it was humanly impossible for the Israelites to breach these walls all on their own. What's more is that at the time the Israelites would come against Jericho, the inhabitants were incredibly well supplied. That was the other huge problem. A natural spring lay within the city walls and provided ample water. We find out from Joshua 3.15 that it was also harvest time. And at the time of the Israelite attack, Jericho's harvest would have already been brought into the city. Dr. Wood estimates that Jericho would have been able to withstand a siege by any attacking people group for years. Years. Looking at this, humanly and scientifically speaking, there is absolutely no and totally no way Joshua and his army of Israelites were going to conquer this city. There was no way. On top of all that, the gates were securely shut. The inhabitants of Jericho knew the Israelites were coming and were afraid. They didn't allow anyone to come in or out of the city. We read that in our scripture reading. And made sure those gates were 100% shored up and secure. Israel had no battering rams, catapults, or anything that would make it even the slightest possible. Slightest possibility. It was an impossible situation. One day, Joshua was walking around, surveying the city of Jericho, wondering how on earth are we going to conquer this city, and noting how impossible it would be to take it, and wondering how on earth they were going to succeed when something happens. This is where we're picking up our Bibles this morning. So if you brought your Bible with you, turn to Joshua chapter uh, 5. It's in the Old Testament. If you didn't bring your Bible with you, that's perfectly fine. There should be one located in the pew in front of you. Uh, please also turn to Joshua chapter 5. Uh, if you're having trouble finding it, ask a neighbor. Look it up in the table of contents. There's no shame in that. I just want everybody to see this together. We're gonna, and our first point this morning is the divine visit. And we're going to start in Joshua chapter 5, verse 13. Joshua chapter 5, verse 13. Now it came about when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? <laughs> Imagine Joshua's shock at that point. See, we've heard this story so many times in Sunday school, it doesn't even phase us. But imagine being Joshua at this point. Imagine his shock. According to one biblical scholar, Joshua was already in heightened battle mode. His blood was already rushing. His adrenaline was already pumping. He was already on edge. He knew that he was going to lead his army against this impregnable city. He just had no idea how. But he was already on edge. Imagine you're Joshua, all hyped up, and all of a sudden, out of the corner of your eye, you catch the glint of sunlight off of a sword. There's a man right near you with a sword already drawn. It's already drawn. Now, back in this time period, or probably any time period, a man with his sword already drawn automatically means what? He's about to attack you. You're about to get jumped. 
So we read that Joshua starts getting closer to him, perhaps even with his sword drawn out, and shouts out, are you friend or foe? If it was a friend, the man would be a fellow Israelite and had some explaining to do. The rest of the Israelites were camped back at Gilgal. Why was he outside of the camp with his sword drawn, especially since Joshua had not yet given any command to draw swords yet? If it were foe, then Joshua had to be ready to fight in sword-to-sword combat. The tension was thick and electrifying. Joshua had no clue who this man with his sword already drawn could possibly be. And the man answers with this, the beginning of verse 14. He said, no, <laughs> neither. Rather, I indeed come now as captain of the host of the Lord. Whoa. I mean, come on. Imagine being Joshua right now. What would your reaction be? The commander of almighty God's angelic army standing right in front of you. If it were me, I'd be running. That's what I would be doing. Joshua has a different response. Second part of verse 14. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and bowed down and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? Joshua falls on his face in reverence and a healthy fear of the Lord. He then asks the question, What do you want with me, your servant? This being's answer, verse 15, The captain of the Lord's host said to Joshua, Remove your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. This is not the first time we've come across this when you're reading through Scripture, is it? This is very similar to Moses and the burning bush, isn't it? When the angel of the Lord appeared to Moses in the form of a burning bush, he told Moses to take off his sandals, for the ground immediately around that bush was holy ground. It was an act of revering the holiness of the revelation of God's presence there. Just like with Moses at Mount Horeb, God was communicating with Joshua in a defiled land and was cleansing it with his presence. According to one biblical scholar, Joshua immediately recognized that he was in the presence of God, just like Abraham, Moses, and the two travelers on the road to Emmaus. In fact, from the evidence of this experience, especially in connection with other instances of the appearance of the angel of the Lord, many biblical scholars believe this to be the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, before he took on human flesh and was born and laid in a manger. In fact, there's a very good chance that this is Jesus before he came as 100% God and 100% human, also known by the term the pre-incarnate Christ, because Joshua's clear worship of this commander is not rebuked. In Revelation 19.10, the apostle John is rebuked by the angel giving him prophecy. And the angel says, do not do that. I am a fellow servant of yours and your brethren who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. But Joshua is not rebuked here. This is encouraging to us. This is encouraging to those who have put their faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins and taking their place on the cross. Why? Because as one biblical scholar points out, Hebrews 1.14 says, Therefore angels are only servants. What are they doing right now? They're sent to care for people who will inherit salvation. Do you know what the, did you know that's what the angels are doing right now? 
They're being sent all over the world, your house, your family, you, to care for you. Because the commander of the Lord's army, Jesus himself, is sending them out to do that right now. Those who have put their faith and trust in him. Whatever, whenever you are going through spiritual battles, call on God to send a squadron of angels to fight that spiritual darkness over you. That's part of their purpose at this point. That's, the, that's their reason right now. That's their job. Now Jesus, as the commander of the Lord's army, gives Joshua the battle plan for conquering Jericho. Chapter 6, verses 1 through 5. We're going to read this all together. Now Jericho was tightly shut because of the sons of Israel. They were afraid. No one went out and no one came in. The Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and the valiant warriors. Well, that sounds good all the way up to that point. But then we read in verse 3. This is the instruction. You shall march around the city, all the men of war circling the city once. You shall do so for six days. Also seven priests shall carry seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. And on the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. It shall be that when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, and you hear the sound of the trumpet, all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people will go up every man straight ahead. Now, if you were in Joshua's place, think about this. That would sound pretty ridiculous, wouldn't it? That does not sound like any battle plan I've ever heard of. There's no human explanation for that. There's no scientific explanation for that. Just like with some of our opening illustrations. From a human perspective, that plan is illogical, that plan is laughable, and that plan is downright embarrassing. From a human point of view, it makes no sense whatsoever. And that's the whole point. We know from reading further on that this plan works. They do exactly as God says, and the plan works. And when those walls come crashing down, all the credit was to go to who? Joshua? No, it was to go to God, who made them all come down. All except that one woman and family that was already promised safety. And that's another thing that doesn't make any sense from a human perspective. Prior to all of this, Joshua sent a couple of spies into Jericho to see if there was any weakness that could be exploited. Soon the king of Jericho finds out and sends soldiers throughout the city to find them. The spies meet a prostitute named Rahab who hides them on her roof and misdirects the soldiers who come looking for them. We read in Joshua that Rahab's house was built into the wall. She later helped them escape with a rope out of her window down the side of the wall on the condition that the Israelite army spare her and her family when they conquer the city. Rahab, a Gentile pagan prostitute, was convinced that something would happen. And as it just so happens, did you know that if you looked at the ruins of Jericho today, all the walls crumbled down except for one section where a house resides. The humanly illogical thing is that when you look at Jesus' bloodline in the New Testament, guess who shows up in that bloodline? Rahab. 
one of two Gentiles to be a part of that bloodline. A pagan Gentile prostitute is included in the bloodline of the glorious Messiah. Now that does not make human sense, does it? But God will call anyone to salvation, regardless of background. God will use anyone for his plan, regardless of past. And that's what brings us to the most important humanly unexplainable thing in existence. And that's God's plan to reconcile us to himself. So we have the divine visit. We talked about all that and having to do with the walls of Jericho. Now we're going to talk about the design. You might ask, what on earth are you talking about? God reconciling us to himself. Isn't it enough that I can just believe in God and try to be a good person and then I go to heaven when I die? That's, surely that's enough. That's better than this guy over here and what he's doing. Short answer, no. It doesn't work like that. I'll get to why in a second. First of all, humanity was originally created to not be perfect. Logically, they could not be perfect or else they wouldn't be the creation. They would be the creator. Therefore, the first two humans were created with the capacity and potential to either love God or not love God to either obey God or try to be like God themselves, to simply give glory to God as his creation or fall to their own pride. They have the capacity to do that. Sadly, we know that from reading the book of Genesis, both that and looking at the world around us, what they eventually chose. They made a decision to not love God and to rather love themselves, the original sin of pride. And because of that, a curse was placed on the entire human race that would come from those first two humans. The curse to be born into sin and to naturally want sin and to not follow the law God has placed in their hearts. And what happened with that is that caused a great rift. That caused a chasm between humanity and God. The truth of the matter is God is holy. God is perfect. Nothing is going to change that. And because of that, he cannot be in the presence of sin. Furthermore, our sin makes us enemies of God. It's not too pleasant to think about that, but that's what God's word says. Because of that, there is no humanly logical or possible way to heal that chasm between us and God. It's impossible. We can't just believe in God. Why? Because we read, you say you have faith, for you believe there is one God. Hey, good for you. Even the demons believe this, and they tremble in terror. So it's not enough to just believe in God. You can't just believe in God, because even the demons believe in God. A lot of good does them, does it? You can't just be good enough, for everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. So that's not good enough either. By extension, you can't do enough good works to earn your way to God. This verse cannot be any clearer, can it? Does it say, everyone is sin, but eh, you know, if you do enough good things, then you'll earn, you'll measure up to God's glorious standard. No, it says we all fall short no matter what we do of God's glorious standard. It doesn't matter how many good things you try to do to outweigh the, God, the, the bad. God's word promises you will always fall short of God's standard. You simply cannot 
and will never measure up enough. Now what does that do? That flies in the face of every other religion in this world and even what we naturally want to believe. Every other religion poses that if you follow all the moral rules as best as possible, you'll earn paradise. If you pray enough certain prayers, if you follow all the sacraments, if you follow the five pillars, if you try to be as good as possible in this life, you'll be reincarnated as something better in the next. If you try to send enough positive energy into the universe, you'll be rewarded by karma. Even what we just naturally want as humans is to believe if we do enough good things or follow all the moral rules as best as possible, we'll go to heaven. However, biblical Christianity from the Bible is the only different faith that flies in the face of everything else. Why? Because everything else relies on human understanding. Something that makes sense, humanly speaking. It makes sense for us to try to earn something. If we live to earn, then we're rewarded. That makes sense to us. If we're bad, then we're condemned. That makes sense to us. But we just read that none of us can ever measure to God's standard. So even according to the Bible, humanly speaking, we have no hope. All of us, all any of us have to look forward to is judgment and condemnation. I'm painting a pretty bleak picture because that's the reality of things. God's plan for us to be able to come to him is completely illogical and humanly does not make any sense. And that's the entire point. Thank God it doesn't or none of us would have any hope. The Apostle Paul comes right out and says that God's plan for humans to be reconciled to God was purposely created to not make any sense to the world. This is what we read in 1 Corinthians 1. The message of the cross, that is salvation found in Jesus, is foolish to those who are headed for destruction. It's just what it simply will always come across as. But we who are being saved know it is the very power of God. It's all we have. As the scriptures say, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and discard the intelligence of the intelligent. So where does this leave the philosophers, the scholars, and the world's brilliant debaters? I love that verse. God has made the wisdom of this world look foolish. He purposely created his plan to reconciliation with himself look foolish to everyone else in the world. Since God in his wisdom saw to it that the world would never know him through human wisdom, he has used our foolish preaching to save those who believe. Instead, God chose the, the things the world considers foolish in order to shame those who think they are wise, who think they know everything. And he chose things that are powerless to shame those who are powerful. God chose things despised by the world, things counted as nothing at all, and used them to bring to nothing what the world considers important. As a result, no one can ever boast in the presence of God because that has absolutely nothing to do with any of us. God has united you with Christ Jesus. For our benefit, God made him, Christ, to be wisdom itself. Christ made us right with God. He made us pure and holy. And he freed us from sin. You see where the focus is entirely on on verse 30? It's not on us at all. 
All we bring to the table is our sin and our hopelessness and our failures and our shortcomings. That's all we bring to the table. It's God that saves us. It's God that makes us pure and holy. That is the entire key to our only hope. If a bunch of the most brilliant modern minds say there is no God and are atheists, you know the only thing that that proves is exactly what God's Word already says, what God said 2,000 years ago. It doesn't negate the plan God came up with from eternity past. Instead, it affirms everything that has already been said. So the next time you hear some scientist or philosopher, somebody say, there's no God, that doesn't shake you at all. All that does is affirm what you already know. He can't discover him on his own. So he's not going to come to belief on his own. Paul wrote 2,000 years ago to not be surprised if the so-called most brilliant minds do not believe in this plan. Because it simply cannot be attained by human discovery or wisdom. It can only be attained through God spiritually opening your eyes to it. You see, yes, on our own, our sinfulness will always separate us from God. And yes, we can never measure up to God's perfect standard. So what had to happen? God had to be the one to reach out to us. That's how much He loves us. He could have just created us, allowed us to sin, and said, tough, you made your bed, now you sleep in it. But His love was too great for that. But here's the problem. We're still running into a wall here. The payment for our sin is death. That's the problem. The Bible clearly says that too. For the wages, the payment of sin is death. Can't get around it. This includes not only physical death, but spiritual death. That is what the Bible refers to as the second death. Eternal banishment from God's presence and therefore punishment in hell. Imagine a world where God's presence is not. So God's plan had to involve some sort of payment to pay that debt for our sin. Since that payment is death, death had to be paid. But since God wanted to save us, it couldn't be our death, or else it would just logically be the next result of the human curse. Someone had to take our place. Someone had to sacrifice themselves on our behalf. Someone had to pay the payment of death for us, and since it was sacrificed on our behalf to take our place, it had to be someone who was perfect, or else nothing would be different. And he is the only one Who is the only one who is perfect? God himself. So the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, also God himself, came to earth in human flesh. He walked among us. He suffered the same things we suffer. He was tempted in every way that we're tempted in and revealed the kingdom of God to us. And he did all of it without sinning. Then he willingly, as if that wasn't enough, he willingly went to the cross to die a tortuous death, to pay the payment for our sin that we had no hope of paying because He loved us so much and wanted to make a way for us to be reconciled with God. And so, there are no amount of good things we can do. All we have to do is know that our sin separates us from God, 
believe that Jesus was who he said he was, God in the flesh, that he took our place and paid our sin debt, repent of that sin and accept Jesus' sacrifice and resurrection on our behalf. That's what reconciles us to God. That's it, right there. You don't have to earn it. There's nothing else. It's all based on God's grace and God's mercy towards us and not only making a way for us to be able to spend an eternity with Him, but in calling us to Himself and opening our eyes through His Holy Spirit to put our faith in Jesus' death and resurrection as our only hope. That's it. The Bible tells us that as soon as we realize this and repent of our sin and take Jesus' death and resurrection on our behalf as our only hope to God and recognize Him as He truly is over us, our King, and as the King, He has the authority to call the shots in our lives, we are referred to as being born again or saved. That's what those terms mean. We're immediately indwelt with the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, to seal us for our eternity and to guide us comfort us and be with us every step of the way the rest of this life that's the gift that we're given so does this victory make sense no it was never meant to just like God's instruction to Joshua but it's the only way it's the only way to peace it's the only way to purpose it's the only way to the confidence of knowing where you'll go when you die You don't have to look over your shoulder. You don't have to fear death. You're confident. You have the peace of knowing exactly where you're going to be when you die. That's an incredible gift, isn't it? It's the only way to have victory over your hopelessness, your inner unrest, your spiritual oppression, your depression, your anxiety, and your fear. It's the only way to have victory over any of that. In a nutshell, it's the only way to have God himself in your life. Believe it or not, you do not need to fear death. All that is, is a doorway to the next life. That's all that is. In fact, Jesus already defeated death when he rose again from the dead. By accepting that for yourself, you will have victory over the second death and go to be with God forever. All of this victory and so much more can be given to you. You can have it. So if you've never recognized this, you've never made this commitment, do so today. Don't put it off. Don't let the enemy of your soul whisper in your ear to put it off or think you can get around to it eventually. Listen to the churning of the Holy Spirit within you right now. If you feel the Holy Spirit churning, it's time to make that decision. Do it today. Once you've made this commitment to God through Jesus Find a solid Bible-believing and Bible-preaching church, Bible-teaching church. We would love to have you be a part of our church family here, but it doesn't have to be our church. Find a solid Bible-teaching, Bible-preaching church where you can continue to grow in your faith. Find one that teaches the Word of God and start growing in your faith. Whether you've made this commitment today or you've been a Christian for years, decades even, As one family, let us all grow in the faith and knowledge of Jesus together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this truth. We thank you that just as the instruction that was given to Joshua about the walls of Jericho made no human sense, 
and it was illogical. It could be laughed at. It was foolishness. Lord, we thank you that your way to reconciliation with yourself makes no sense to the world. It's illogical. It's laughable. Oh, Lord, we thank you for that. We thank you that you have reached into our lives. Lord, I I pray that if there's anybody here today that has not made that commitment to you, I pray that they would listen to the churning of you within their hearts this morning and they would do exactly that. And they would say, Lord God, I know that I've sinned. I know I'm a sinner. I know that I cannot have reconciliation with you on my own. I know that Jesus, Jesus' death on my behalf and his resurrection is my only hope. I get rid of my sin. I don't want it anymore. I don't want to be that person anymore. I want to be your child. I want you in my life. And as you are in my life, I make you my king. And I let you call the shots in my life. And Lord, we thank you that as soon as we pray something like that, we make that commitment and we actually mean it, that you make a home within us. Your Holy Spirit comes and makes a home within us. And we have you in our lives, the whole rest of our lives, and then for eternity. We thank you for the unspeakable, tremendous gift you've given to us as human beings through the death and resurrection of Jesus. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.